You're listening to a sermon from the Access Church as we seek to gain godly stability through the book of James. Well, welcome and good morning. I'm Jeremy, one of the pastors here uh, at the Axis, and it's a, a joy to be with you. If you haven't already done so, do find yourself there in James uh, chapter 4. Um, and go ahead and grab uh, one of your, or grab the James journal that's made available for you too, um, there on the back table uh, to follow along with us. Um, last year, when we decided to work through the content of James as a church, um, we landed upon this book together because of the stability that comes from studying such a book, uh, such a letter. A letter written by a pastor. Uh, to a church, a letter that's, that's known for its wisdom, um, a letter that's intended to ground Christians, to mature Christians, and to help stabilize Christians, uh, to find stability in such a very unstable cultural moment as young, fragile um, Christianity, as this was written 2,000 years ago. We need the same stabilizing ballast today, uh, the stabilizing ballast of uh, God's wisdom and the hope that comes from knowing him as father uh, in our own cultural moment today. And James said in chapter one that he desired his readers to be stable and sound. He said, I don't want you to be like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed uh, so easily by the wind. James wants his readers for me and for you and his original audience, the first generation of Christians, to be single-minded, to be stable, to be focused, to be determined, uh, to have a purity of heart, a singularity of soul. He did not want them to be wishy-washy, unstable, and double-minded, which the, uh, you know, the double-minded person is always unstable in this way. And then last week, remember that we learned from James that the unstable person is often quarrelsome and they're frustrated, often because of something that's unsettling within them. And it plays out in this being quarrelsome um, and, and just tense, right, uh, with others. It's because of a discontentment down within them, because of this division uh, that they're experiencing in their soul, in their minds, a dissatisfaction that exists in his readers, that exist in me, that exists in you often, as we try to live according to what we feel is best and also live according to what God says is best. That's where this tension and instability comes from. These two voices uh, vying for control of our life. Which way will we go? Are we going to follow our desires, the desires of our heart? We're we going to follow what God says in his word and let that speak into our way and change our heart, right? A verse that seems very appropriate, but often frustrating because if we really think through these words, it's, it's not easy to really grab hold of and, and, and feel excited about it, is Proverbs chapter three, but it's very appropriate, appropriate for James. It says, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. This is the tough part. And do not lean on the things that you feel is best. Don't lean on your own understanding. But instead, in all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Don't trust yourself or be not wise in your own eyes. We don't like that either. But instead, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will, it, I know it doesn't feel this way, but it will be healing to your flesh. 
I know it's hard to understand and receive this, but it will actually end up producing refreshment to your bones. And James, James tells us that we, we have to choose whether we're to follow ourselves and what we feel is best, or we must choose to follow God and what he says is best. And we're making a choice all the time. Every second of our life, we're choosing between these two things. One is driven by, mainly by reason, and the other is driven primarily by faith. In fact, faith alone. One describes the disobedient mankind following what he feels is best, and the other describes the obedient Christian that's following what God says is best. And I believe this is very timely. I believe wholeheartedly that, that passages uh, in James, specifically like one that we have today, is going to be so wonderfully helpful to us in our friendships and relationships and how we think about other people if we would listen and absorb the truth that, the God, that God has for us and let it speak into us without us trying to filter through whether we like it or not. Rather, take it in and then filter our life through what it has to say. I hope you'll do this. Last week, we jumped back into James. It was our 10th week in our study, working through James, uh, who was the younger brother of, of Jesus. And so today, we're jumping into chapter 4, verses, only verses 11 and 12. Uh, it was too convicting, honestly, it, to, to try to go further. Like, this has been a, a very convicting passage for me. It has worked deeply in my heart. Um, it's, it is a, it's sad how convicting it really was in my life. Um, and so we're, we're in verse, uh, verses 11 and 12 with week 11. Um, I hope you give yourself to this passage. Um, let's pray once more. Father, um, Lord, I just ask for your help, Lord, in, in um, helping your children, Lord, uh, understand how we're to live um, and how we're to behave and how we're to handle one another uh, and help us understand the power that's needed, Lord, to obey such a thing. Lord, teach us, I pray. Help us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. James chapter four, starting in verse 11. He says, do not speak evil against one another. Don't, don't slander is, a, is another term there. Uh, don't speak degradingly of one another and against one another. Brothers, church family, Christians. The one who speaks against a brother, the one who condemns a brother, uh, the one who uh, assumes the worst of his brother and makes it known, uh, the one who judges his brother or sister as guilty um, or, or judges um, his brother, evaluates their way, passes judgment on them, whoever does this actually speaks evil against the law, the law of God, not, not just a general law, not just a, a, a national law, but the law of God. And he judges the law. So he's speaking evil against the law and he's judging the law. But if you judge the law, think about this, you're, you're stopping simply obeying. You're, you're no longer just a doer of the law, a keeper of the law. But instead, you've made yourself out to be a judge, a ruler, a lawgiver, a law enforcer. So as you think of others, uh, as you consider their ways, and we do it, we judge people on Facebook, we judge people at work, we judge people in society, we judge people if they're wearing a mask or not, we judge people on how they park, like we, we judge people all the time. We're considering their ways, and as we judge people, in our, sometimes we, we make it in our heart, these assessments, these judgments, other times we use our mouth to judge them. When we begin to do this, James says, you're, you're stopping the obedience of the law. You are ceasing 
to obey the law and being a true obedient doer of the law. You have stopped being obedient. James teaches us that this such criticism and this slander and this chirping and this judging is actually, it goes far beyond and higher than just judging another person, another Christian. It goes so far as judging the very law of God. And as you judge others, you're no longer obeying the law, but actually you're using the law in a way that only God is to use it. God being the only true judge. And in this, you're breaking the law of God. So as you judge others for breaking the law, perhaps, maybe they were, as you do this, there's no question about it, you yourself are breaking the law. That's what James says. And he gives us a reality check moment in verse 12. Their reminder here, there is only one lawgiver, okay? There's only one author of the law. There's only one originator of the law. There's only one lawgiver and there's only one judge. And it is he who is fully capable, he's fully able to save and to destroy. He's fully capable. The one who is the lawgiver and the one who is the judge, it's, it's he who is able to deliver and rescue, to keep from harm, to save, as well as to judge, destroy, and condemn. But now, who are you, James asked, in light of all this, who are you to judge your neighbor? Who are you to, to rise up and sit upon the throne and make judgments? Speaking evil of other Christians now, if you notice, has divulged into making judgments of neighbors, making judgments of all people, Christian or not. Because neighbor, according to Jesus, is anyone you ever come across who's needy and who's hurting. So typically in this situation, it's those who are the easiest to say, told you so, you had it coming. I, I knew it. We're going to pick up more on, on the neighbor part here in just a moment. So there's, there's one lawgiver, right? There's one judge, he who is able to save and he who is able to destroy. Is that you, James asked? Is that you? Are, are you sure you're the one able to save? Are you the one who can destroy? Are you sure that, that you're the one who can help rescue and deliver? Are you able to keep people from harm? There's only one lawgiver, there's only one judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. So in light of this, who are you? Who are you to judge in this way? If this is true, if this is the Bible, God's word given to us, and this passage hits us today, who are you to judge in this way? Rhetorical question, should you really be the one to judge in this way? Should you be the one putting yourself forward to make the call on these things? Is it your place to search the souls of others and to decide whether or not they should be saved or damned? Is it your place to eternally incriminate, to judge their hearts, their intentions, their motives? And James says, no. No, it's, it's really not your place to do this. You can't honestly judge because you too are being judged. We, we must not set ourselves up as judges. James says, who are you to do such a thing? The great judge sits over the law. The great judge does not sit under the law. And James reminds us of who we are and where we belong in relation to the law. He says, you belong under the law. You don't belong above the law. So in light of our cultural moment and times of all the divisiveness that, that permeates our news feeds, newspapers, news outlets, let's ask ourselves this question and seriously consider our answer. Who are you? to judge your neighbor. 
I fear that we've fallen prey to a great strategy of the evil one. And scripture teaches us his three-part tactic is to steal, kill, and to destroy. Satan is the evil one. He's the author and distributor of all confusion and division. So Christian, you must not drift to the place the enemy is subtly working to pull you towards. Today needs to be the day where you realize what's happening and you put a stop to it. It is very unchristian to speak poorly of other Christians. And it's just as unchristian to judge your neighbor. Well then, right, who is our neighbor? Jesus was asked about who his neighbor was uh, in, in Luke chapter 10. And by the way, something I've realized of my own heart and others uh, and uh, seeing this sort of thing play out is often we ask the question, as these guys did with Jesus, asking who is my neighbor, we ask that question not of in hopes of who we get to include, but who we can exclude. That's why we want to know who our neighbor is. Who can I knock off the list and not worry about, right? In Luke 10, uh, 25, Jesus is telling, you know, you know the story of the Good Samaritan, right? Two guys pass by, one guy stops. And Jesus taught that a neighbor, in this situation, his response to who is my neighbor, he gave the story of the Good Samaritan, and he taught that a, a neighbor is anyone who needs mercy, that's what a neighbor is, according to Jesus. And that, that being a good neighbor is, is not to be a judgy one, but one to show mercy even when you could judge. Even to the one who doesn't like you. Even to the one who doesn't think the way that you think. And remember back to James 2.13, he's already taught us that mercy triumphs over judgment. He's already taught us that. But during times of persecution in the early church when he was writing, during times of pandemic and political upheaval for us in the postmodern church, it is so easy to be judgy. It's so easy to have a platform. It's so easy to speak evil of other people. It's so very easy. Our times are very divisive. Everything is so charged. Everything is so volatile. We're all on edge. We're all judging people at all times. And for some reason, we're convinced that we're the ones doing it right and everyone else is doing it wrong. And there are certain people that just don't deserve mercy. They don't deserve kindness, is what we feel. But that's the very thing about mercy, isn't it? Mercy is mercy because it's not deserved. James can help us if we'll listen. You see, Pastor James is pleading with us. He's pleading with his readers to be so very careful with their words to be so very careful with their hearts in relation to other people, to be so very careful to be putting your zeal and effort into pursuing harmony, finding the places where we unite, having unity in the Christian community. And he bluntly commands, this isn't just like trying to throw out an idea for us to consider and be like, nah, I don't think so, James, not this one. Let's keep going. What else you got for us? But he's commanding us. You see, God, God wrote this book. It wasn't just James. God inspired a man named James, who happened to be the younger brother of Jesus, to write these words. So these words, much like all the Bible, should be in red because it's all written by Jesus. Red letters is what I mean. And red. You should read all of it. He commands us that Christians are not to slander one another. We're not to slander one another. It's not our place to judge others especially those people who deserve judgment the most, you're to give them mercy instead of judgment. 
We're not to speak evil about. We're not to say bad things about others. And for us, it's, it's typical for slander to imply today in our culture, the things that are said are untrue. That's the, the general tone of the word slander. The general meaning for us today is that the word slander means you're saying something that's not true about someone and you're slandering them. You're trying to ruin their reputation. But the Greek word that's used here in the New Testament, it doesn't imply this. So for James, he's saying whether it's true or not, it's not your place to speak bad of these people. True or not, don't ever quickly assume that you must be the one to judge somebody just because you feel like you've got a good chance. As far as James is concerned, whether the things are said are, are true or not, critical wor words that harm and, and cut and divide and destroy the community are not to be spoken. I remember back in 2012, I believe, Elsie was almost a year old. We went to go visit my great-grandma. At the time, I think she was probably 106. Um, my great-grandma, Nanny Craig, it was cool seeing like 105 years between two people as my nanny was holding our little Elsie Grace. She ended up uh, passing away just like a month and a half before she turned 108. And um, brilliant mind about her, uh, strong, healthy. She was a big woman. Um, but my nanny Craig, I could talk hours and hours. She graduated uh, from Appalachian State University in 1928, which was baller for a woman to do that in the 20s. That was pretty awesome. I love that. And she was stronger than most of the guys in her graduating class. She was a farmer. The, the Appalachian State University president and historian flew in their helicopter, landed in her cornfield across the road from her house. Uh, this was just probably two years, three years before she passed away. And they were asking her questions, showing her pictures of certain things from the 20s and 30s, wanting to know information on people and things and happenings and, you know, the times of like, trying to draw some clarity around some unknowns of Appalachian State University teaching school, Appalachian State Teachers School is what it was called uh, back then. And uh, we were talking about their visit and she, she said, Jeremy... I just feel awful because I told that man that I didn't remember and I didn't know, but I did. There were some things I did know and I told him I didn't. You think that's okay? And I said, well, I guess. I'm not going to argue with a 105-year-old woman on what she remembers or not. I mean... <laughs> she said, it's just some things are... This is amazing. Some things are just better off left in the past. She said, it's not my business to speak of those things. I was like, what do you mean? She said, well, some people died in car wrecks. It's just awful. She said, some people committed suicide. I don't want to tell that. She said, some people got divorced. It's not my place to talk about that. I know they wanted me to say more, but I couldn't. It just wouldn't be right. I'm so sorry. Do you think that's okay? That was how she handled trying to obey, perhaps, this very passage. To be clear, James teaches us that only God reserves the right to judge and to declare judgment. God Almighty is sovereign over all things. You don't have to be. Take a break. 
God sees all. He knows all. And he will repay all for the wrongs that they've done. All people will have to answer for their sins and answer to God. They don't have to answer to you. Your, you, you, you yourself will answer for your sins and you will be condemned for your sin. Or you will stand in Christ, with Christ, and beside Christ, and he'll answer for you as he was condemned for your sin in your place on the cross. Remember the wonderful work of Jesus for you. As you think of this coming judgment that awaits us for all the wrong that we've done, remember that he's borne our griefs, that he's carried our sorrows, that he was pierced for our transgressions. Remember that he was crushed for our iniquities. Remember that our chastisement was placed upon him that brought us peace with God. And remember that it was his wounds and through his wounds that we have been healed. All this is eternally true for you so long as you believe that Jesus did this for you. So you've got to endure the judgment of God upon your sin and be pronounced guilty and sent to eternal torment in hell or through faith in Jesus alone, you believe that he was judged for you in your place. You believe that he was pronounced guilty as he became your very sin. You believe that he experienced the judgment of God for you. You believe that he died so that you might live. All things will be perfectly and righteously judged one day. All things by the most perfect God. All things will be perfectly reconciled and justified and rectified one day through Jesus's work on the cross and through the judgment of God Almighty. All things. Psalm uh, 75, 7 says, it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another, destroying or saving. It's his doing. This is why James teaches that the person who criticizes their fellow Christian and even their neighbor, who perhaps isn't even a Christian, they are in fact pushing God aside and essentially shoving God off the throne and taking on the role of judge, which only God has the right to do this. How can such a person not expect judgment in return? In fact, Jesus warned about the consequences of judging others in Matthew chapter seven. He says, judge not, Okay, should be enough. Judge not that you be not judged. And now this is an incredible principle for, for understanding how to handle other people. For with the judgment you pronounce on others, you will be judged. You want grace? Be gracious. You want judgment? Keep judging. And with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye? Interesting language there, same as James. Why is it that you see the speck in your brother's eye, a, a, a small little splinter, a piece of dust, but do not notice the four by four hanging out of your face? There's a log hanging out of your eye. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you're hitting him with the log that's coming out of your head? You're a hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye and then worry about other people. You'll be able to then see clearly to help the other person. This is a moment of perspective, a, a good dose of reality if we'll take it. I remember hearing the old adage many times growing up, each time you point your finger at somebody, there are several pointing back at you. I fixed it. I just started pointing like that. <laughs> right? I don't want that to be true. 
Uh, when we find ourselves drifting to spending time looking for faults in other people, looking for their sins, looking for how they're doing things, what we would consider and deem and judge as wrong, we should spend that time repenting of our own sins and looking under the hood of our own heart, asking God to reveal our sin to us, the four by four that's in our face, to let us see it, to let us know it, to see it the way that he sees it so that we can then repent fully of this sin that we carry with us and we might move onward in obedience, in godliness, and in holiness without which we will not see the Lord. May we ask God to help us hope all things of others, which is the way of love, assuming the best, rather than judge all things, which is the way of pride, assuming the worst. And ask God to be with those who we feel like judging so rather than being chirpy and criticizing, our reflex is initially to pray. The humble, repentant Christian has very little time to sin sniff other people. They're too busy with their own. They've got their hands full. I believe godly wisdom would say, let's, let's simply keep our judgy eyes out for ourselves. You're good at judging. Judge yourself. You do it all the time, so do it to yourself. Judge yourself, not others. And, and addressing the log in your own eye, you've got plenty, plenty to keep you busy. We'd have no time to be concerned about judging others if we were truly aware of all that we're doing that's not honoring God and not in line with Christian obedience. So my hope is that we would get low to this passage, feel this and get low and not judge, not assume, but through humility and prayer, understand that's the way forward and not pride and not judgment. Charles Spurgeon says, none are more unjust in their judgments of others than those who have a high opinion of themselves. So let's get low. Let's ask God to have the ability to, to look at ourselves the way that he sees us, to see our sin the way that he sees it and understands it. The high place where the throne is, that's not our place. Knowing and believing this is not only the way of wisdom, but it's also the way of much peace. A, a, a step, a quick step towards peace and calm and experiencing less anxiety in, in, is minding your own business and not judging other people. And I know this is, this is so very important for us. As your pastor, I pray that you understand where I'm coming from. You don't know why people are doing some of the things that they're doing. And it's a very real possibility that you don't know all of their situation, and if you did, you would probably be thrilled they're doing things the way they're doing it. If you would just try to humble yourself and stop judging and extend grace. They're just careless with the pandemic. They're careless with this and that. What if there's more to their story and what's going on emotionally within them, what's going on psychologically within them, perhaps they're not as strong as you are to handle certain things like a pandemic or politics and just kind of continue unscathed? What if it's more difficult and problematic for them to do that? What if they've got to make tough calls on how to handle such things? Have you ever considered what it might be like to not have the life you have, but to, to actually walk in the life of someone else's shoes? We've all got opinions. We've all got thoughts, especially around the things that we've experienced the last 12 months. And James would say, and I want to echo that judging others does nothing except make matters worse in your own heart. 
and the family of God. I believe that coming, accepting the reality that you might not know all of their story, accepting the reality that if you did know all their story, you would probably be going about it the same way they are, accepting that possibility, what it does, it creates a growing gracefulness towards other people. A growing understanding, a growing patience. And it is so necessary in moments of high tension like what we're living in right now, all around the world, in our country, in our state, and in our city. And what this does, when, you, when this gracefulness begins to grow, pride and stress begins to fall away from you. As you, in the words of my mama, mind your own business. Changed my life, wonderful quote. Like Benjamin Franklin said, believe none of what you hear and only half of what you see. Or as Proverbs 25 puts it, what your eyes have seen, don't hastily bring into court. What do you do in court? Make judgments. Don't hastily go to judgment. Even what your eyes sees, you don't know it all. You don't understand all that's there. You're very limited. You're very, very ignorant. God knows all. You do not. Be slow to make such judgments. Now, to be clear, there's certainly a way to confront others in grace and truth. There's absolutely, there's a way to confront other people out of caution and love and concern that is so very far from judging other people. But remember, Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitfully and desperately wicked. Who can know it? You see, we rarely are good at judging ourselves and our own motives and our own intentions. We're even worse at trying to assume that of other people. But on confronting others, I fully commend to you Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 29. Paul gives us a four-question guide for knowing if and when and how to confront other people with grace and tenderness and mercy. He says this in Ephesians 4, 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. So if I'm going to confront, is it going to be corrupting? Two, but only, only such as is good for building up. Will this build up? Will it only build up? Okay. Three, as it fits the occasion. Does this fit the occasion? Is this appropriate? And then four, that it may give grace to those who hear it. Not only the person you're talking to, but the person who hears about it. The person who overhears it. Okay? Well, they understand it. Ephesians 4.29 is legit in regards of how to handle other people and your words. It's, it goes like this. This is sort of my own words here. One, don't speak with words that corrupt or harm. Don't speak. Those, those are completely out of line, out of place. That's the easiest one, honestly. And then two, speak words that build up. Speak words that build up, not, not to tear down. In other words, asking, will this bring courage to their inner person? Will this, will this encourage them? Don't speak words that corrupt. Two, speak words that build up. Three, speak words that fit the occasion. Speak words that fit the occasion. This is praying for prudence. Remember, prudence is like wisdom that wears a watch. It understands when, right? Is it appropriate for this time? Is it the best time? Is it the best place? Is it the right moment? Am I the right person to speak these words right now? After you just missed a penalty kick, it's not like you don't go up and be like, ah, hey, you should have kicked it to the right. He was diving left. It's like, thanks a lot. Really helpful right now, right? We've all experienced the poor timing of people's encouragement. And then fourthly, speak words that give grace 
to others. This is beautiful. Does it make them feel loved and cared for and liked? Do they discern that? Do they discern your tenderness? Is it so obvious that you're being gentle and gracious with them? When closing, I want to remind you that through Jesus, you might live forever, but only Jesus reigns forever. That's not your job. Jesus has permanently and firmly established his throne, and he doesn't outsource that responsibility to anybody else. He doesn't need an interim judge. So we can all relax and trust the judging over to God. It's not our task. It's not our place. Jesus will judge the world in righteousness. He will govern the peoples with justice. These are his job description. It's not ours. It's not mine. It's not yours. And as a good neighbor, rather than judging other people, we should extend mercy. Learn to hope the best, but pray assuming the worst. Hope the best, but pray assuming the worst. Pray asking God to help help us not chirp and criticize and judge other people. Pray asking God to reveal to us our blind spots and our four by fours that we live with. And rather than spreading gossip, let's remember the gospel and pray for them. In a closing passage, I have Romans 12. Um, I found it so applicable to the content and heart of James in verses 11 and 12. So I want to read James 4, 11 and 12. And then I want to go into Romans 12, 9 through 21. And then I've rewritten Romans 12 in light of the finished work of Jesus. And I hope, hope you're encouraged by it. James 4. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law anymore, but you're a judge. And there's only one lawgiver, there's only one judge, he who is able to save and destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? Romans 12, 9 through 21. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never, never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, now so far as it depends on you, if possible, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Actually, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not overcome evil by evil, but overcome evil with good. This all describes the person and work of our hero, Jesus. His love was genuine. He loved until the very end. He hated evil. He died to kill evil. He only held fast to what was good. He loved well and with brotherly affection. He loved with the same love that he received from God the Father. He honored even those who were not honorable. In fact, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, 
yet he opened not his mouth. He was zealous and fervent in his spirit as he served the Lord perfectly throughout all of his days. He rejoiced in hope. He patiently and perfectly endured trials, temptations, and tribulation without sin. He was constant in prayer and communion with the Father. He died for the sinner, making them a saint, and showed hospitality by welcoming outsiders into his family. He blessed those who cursed him, crying out from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's not cursing. He rejoiced with those who were rejoicing and was faithful to weep with those who were weeping like Martha at the tomb of Lazarus, we're told in John 11, 35, Jesus wept. He lived for harmony and peace, though he rarely experienced it personally. He died so that we might know it and live it and have it forever. Jesus was far from haughty as he did nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Rather, he did all things with humility, counting others more significant than himself. He didn't look out for his own interest, in fact, but the interests always of others. And though he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God as a thing to be held onto, but instead emptied himself by taking the form of a servant to the point of being born in the likeness of men. And he further humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, and all this for others. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. As far as the lowly goes in all the Bible, the only time Jesus spoke of his nature and his disposition is when he said, I'm gentle and I'm lowly. Jesus is perfect. He is wisdom personified. In fact, Jesus and Jesus Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Jesus repaid evil with grace, healing, and good. Enduring hostility, Jesus rarely experienced peace, yet he himself is our peace, who has unified and reconciled us as one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by fulfilling God's law so that Jesus might destroy division, making peace. And he's reconciled us to God through the cross he hung on, thereby killing hostility. In all this, he never sought revenge. He never held on to it as leverage. Entrusting all this revenge to the wrath of God who judges justly the living and the dead. He knew that vengeance was God's, that God would repay. We are the enemy that Jesus graciously cares for and feeds. We are the enemy who's thirsty and he gives something to drink. And Jesus never attempted one single time to overcome evil with evil, but he always overcame evil with good. All of this is what we remember as we approach the Lord's table today. You know, all of what James is commanding us to do in this text, in all of his letter, which is, James gives us a lot of things to simply obey. He rarely addresses the motive. But all that James is asking us and commanding us to do and not to do, to resist or to pursue, all that we're commanded to do here to obey is the fruit and work of the Holy Spirit of God in our life. He's producing this through the Christian's life. 
Jesus promises us that he will do this in and through us if we humble ourselves and trust Jesus wholeheartedly and seek his power and live by his presence. The Spirit of God will change us. The Spirit of God will transform us if we will simply call out to him and ask. This is how we move forward in obedience over passages like James chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Asking God to help us love our neighbor and to protect us from speaking evil of no one is the way forward. But we can't do this on our own. The world shows us right now that there's no way we can do this on our own. This only comes through faith and trust in the risen Lord Jesus and his faithful, abiding, thank God, stubborn spirit working in us. Again, the only hope that you and I have to obey what James is commanding us to do here is for you to have the spirit of God working faithfully 24-7 constantly, faithfully working in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. His spirit only comes to us as we exercise faith in Jesus and all that he did for us, which is what we're focusing on as we come to communion and the Lord's table. My ask in all of this is that you don't try to obey this without his spirit providing the power and the way and the motive to obey. Remember, we pursue obedience as Christians in response to the finished work of Jesus. We don't pursue obedience to get a response from God. We obey in response to what God has already lavishly, wonderfully done for us. In response to Jesus, in response to the grace of God. We don't perform to get God to like us and to make good things happen. God shows us favor in, even while we are dead in our sin, Christ died for us. We're to pursue obedience in response to his work. We take action. We work to obey because he loves us. We don't obey to cause him to love us. And know this, that the gap that always exists between our best efforts and obedience and the righteous requirement of perfect obedience. That gap that exists there, this has and forever and always will be graciously and generously covered by the work and the righteousness and perfection of Jesus. This is what we focus on now and thank God for as we come to the Lord's table. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You're listening to a sermon from the Access Church as we seek to gain godly stability through the book of James.